From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It has been an eventful month. The House of Representatives impeachment inquiry into President Trump has become a font of high-profile depositions, bombshells, attacks, and counterattacks. Further action on impeachment may well hang on four words in the U.S. Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, to help us understand what that meant then and now, and for more on the impeachment process, we're calling on Dr. Buckner F. Melton, Jr. He's professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State and author of the first impeachment. Dr. Melton, thank you so much for joining us. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. So according to the Constitution, what is an impeachable offense? The Constitution says that the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States are liable to impeachment for, and this is a quotation, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason and bribery are pretty straightforward, but of course, as you mentioned a moment ago, high crimes and misdemeanors is the $64,000 question. Yeah, so what qualifies as high crimes and misdemeanors? I have no idea, and I'm sure you like hearing that from a specialist. The phrase uh, goes back at least to the 1640s in English history, and it might go back a couple of centuries even before that. And, of course, many of the founders were lawyers and had studied English law. And when they were deciding in the Philadelphia Convention what would be impeachable, one of the founders suggested maladministration, and others objected that that would would mean pleasure of the Senate. Whatever the Senate decided they didn't like, they could impeach for. And so instead of using maladministration, they substituted this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. And other than that, we really don't know what the founders meant by it. Of course, the big question is, does crime mean crime? Does it require an actual indictable offense. And a lot of debate has centered around that. Yeah, the question here is whether an ordinary criminality, let's say, is different than high crimes and misdemeanors. So, So how do you gauge that? Historically, how have these words been interpreted? There have been federal judges in the several impeachments that we have had that have probably been convicted for things that were not indictable offenses. The first one that immediately comes to mind is federal judge John Pickering in 1803-1804, who simply had a case of senility and, and alcoholism, and they couldn't figure out any other way to get him out. So even though he committed no actual criminal offense, he was found guilty. So that certainly established the precedent, right or wrong, that you can be removed for something that might not be an indictable crime. Of course, he was just a federal judge with a lifetime appointment, and things might be different for an elected president. So how is the criminality defined here different than what is at stake or on trial in a regular criminal trial? That's the interesting point because neither the Constitution nor the debates in the federal convention tried to give any further definition of that phrase. Now, some of the scholarly debate raises questions such as, what if the president were simply jaywalking? Is that a crime? Is it a high crime? Is it something that we should remove the president for? Uh, Another example would be, let's say the president simply takes Air Force One to Tahiti and sits on the beach drinking pina coladas and refuses to do his job. That's not an indictable offense, but many people argue it would certainly be an impeachable one.
One of the examples that we do have is Richard Nixon. He was not ultimately impeached, but there were three articles of impeachment against him from the House Judiciary Committee, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and the third, defying House subpoenas during its impeachment investigation. So obviously, number three is not alleging a crime. So who decides? Ultimately, it is the Senate who decides. Uh, there is a popular misconception that impeachment means to throw out. And the word impeachment technically means something akin to an indictment, a formal charge or ac accusation. And that's what we see the House of Representatives doing. That's the House's job. Whereas if there actually is an impeachment, then the senators will sit as judge and jury. And ultimately, it is the senators' collective decision as to what amounts to high crimes or misdemeanors. Make sure I understand. The House of Representatives has sole power of bringing impeachment. Senate has sole power to try impeachments. Yes, exactly. And you have seen some very controversial statements about that. Uh, president Gerald Ford, before he was president, while he was in the House, once gave the very cynical definition of high crimes and misdemeanors as anything that the House impeaches for and anything that two-thirds of the senators will vote to convict for, mm -hmm. because it does require a two-thirds supermajority vote to convict. There are critics that say the Senate today, Congress is mired in gridlock with many matters not even making it to the Senate floor. Could the Senate treat impeachment in the same way and just choose not to hold an impeachment trial? Well, once again, if you look at the constitutional text, it states explicitly the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. It doesn't say the Senate has the duty to try impeachments. So the specter has been raised of the Senate doing to an impeachment preferred against President Trump. Essentially what it did with uh, President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland a few years ago to be a justice of the Supreme Court. It simply took no action. I suppose that technically the Senate is within its, uh, within its authority to do that, but the senators might have to wrestle with public opinion on that and ultimately the voters in the voting booth. We're talking about the Constitutional Foundations of Impeachment with Dr. Buckner Melton, professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State University and author of The First Impeachment. Well, presidents are not the only ones who can be impeached. Which other offices are at risk? Certainly presidents and vice presidents, and they are, they are listed by name in the Constitution, and civil officers of the United States, and this has traditionally been extended to include federal judges, and there have been roughly half a dozen federal judges who have been removed by the impeachment process. A secretary of war has been charged, but I believe he resigned before the process went through. Uh, a Supreme Court justice was in fact impeached, but he was acquitted, and a United States senator, who in, was in fact the first impeachment, that's what the subject of my book is, and the Senate dismissed that one for a lack of jurisdiction, and that has usually been taken to mean that members of Congress are not impeachable, despite what President Trump was saying a few weeks ago about certain congressmen needing to be impeached. You mentioned that the concept of impeachment and high crimes and misdemeanors were derived somewhat from parliamentary language. So what do we know about the impeachment process and what it was meant or how it was meant to be used when the Constitution was being written? In England, there was always a tension between the power of parliament and the power of the crown. And impeachment was often used as a tool of parliament against the crown, or at least the crown's ministers. And conviction for impeachments in England, which 
began as early as 1376 or 1386, could entail the death penalty on occasion. So you couldn't bring down a monarch by impeachment necessarily, but you could bring down the officers serving that monarch. So in a way, this was this was the first time this had ever happened, obviously, when the Constitution was drafted. What did that mean in the thinking? What would we know about the thinking that went behind that? Well, there was a fear that the president could be misled by officials who were corrupt, and even the president himself could therefore become liable to impeachment. We did limit it very sharply compared to the English process because the Constitution says that only removal from office and perhaps disqualification at the discretion of the Senate. These are the only two possible penalties for an impeachment. There can't be incarceration, there can't be the death penalty, and that raises the interesting question of whether or not impeachment itself is actually a criminal proceeding, and there are strong divisions of opinion on that as well. The current impeachment inquiry began in September. This was after a whistleblower wrote to both congressional intelligence committees that President Trump was using the power of his office to solicit interference by a foreign government in a U.S. election. Since then, part of the debate has swirled over whether the whistleblower, a CIA officer, must reveal his identity. We know it's a male. What are the arguments surrounding this constitutionally? In the House of Representatives, the Constitution says that the House has the sole power of impeachment. Interestingly enough, the House has not always followed these careful precedents and and attempted to extend due process. As a matter of fact, for the first century, it was invariable that the House would vote an impeachment first and only then, sometimes months later, write the formal articles of impeachment. So... President Trump's arguments that the the House is not following the law are a little bit weak in that regard. Now, if impeachment is in fact a criminal process, once you get to the Senate, once you actually have the actual trial going on, there may be a Sixth Amendment right to confront one's accusers. And in that case, Trump might be on stronger ground. But once again, that's only if impeachment is actually a criminal process. There was also some debate on how the whistleblower complaint was handled, the process. The accusation here is that the inspector general within the Intelligence Committee broke the chain of command to get this complaint out of the Department of Justice over to the House. Is that path constitutionally sound? Well, it certainly raises questions of bias on the part of what we might consider either the prosecutors, the DA, if you will, by analogy, or the grand jurors. If you continue that analogy, defendants or potential defendants have tended to have much fewer rights when it comes to grand jury proceedings than the actual trial in court. And so the House does have more leeway in that regard. I don't think the House is doing itself any favors if it acts in too partisan a manner here, Mm -hmm. because ultimately to convict a president, you really do have to have a bipartisan consensus that something's very, very wrong. The president and his lawyers have been calling into question the legitimacy of this process since the beginning. Dr. Melton, if that strategy continues, what is the logical end here? Well, once again, if this is seen as a grand jury proceeding, I'm not sure that the president has a lot of ground to stand on. The more worrisome aspect of this is that what if the president made a claim after being impeached, tried, and convicted 
that there were procedural irregularities in the Senate. Now, if the Senate were being scrupulously careful to follow its procedures, he would have less ground to stand on. But if there were any impropriety at all, he might have an argument. And the ultimate nightmare scenario is what if he said the conviction was illegitimate and I'm not going, and he filed a lawsuit to try to overturn that. We would not know during the pendency of the lawsuit who our president was. Hmm. I hope it doesn't get to that point, obviously. Well, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that if this were a a criminal or grand jury trial, if the president had good lawyers, they could argue about irregularities in the trial that led to this. Yes, and the Constitution does use strongly judicial language when talking about impeachments. Impeachments have been used in political ways in the past, but the Constitution speaks of oaths. The senators have to take an oath. It uses the word trial of impeachments. It uses the words judgment and conviction. And so we take from that that the Senate does have to use some sort of judicial process here. And if it were to deviate from that, or even if Trump charged that it had deviated from that, whether or not it had, we could be looking at a constitutional crisis. Dr. Buckner Melton, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Dr. Melton is professor of history and political science at Middle Georgia State University, author of the book, The First Impeachment, and host of Naval History Podcast. Coming up, a recent GSU study delves into the biological impacts of racism and its links to aging. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Childhood experiences last a lifetime with sometimes profound effects on physical and mental health. A study from Georgia State University follows the American Academy of Pediatrics in reporting on how racism affects children over time. Dr. Sierra Carter is assistant professor of psychology at GSU and co-author of a study finding that African-American children who experience early life stress from racial discrimination are at elevated risk for accelerated aging and depression later in life. Dr. Carter joins us early this morning to help us understand these findings. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So what exactly does accelerated aging mean in the context of your research? We like to think of accelerated aging as this wear and tear down of body systems in this basic sense. So looking at your chronological age versus your biological age. And when we think about it, there are many ways to measure accelerated aging in our literature. But we have recently seen that we can look at gene expression indexes of um, accelerated aging processes through blood draws. And when we do that, we can look and see biological markers that are risk factors for chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. Some of those chronic diseases look at metabolic functioning, cardiovascular risk, um, some that are particularly relevant to the African-American community because we see disparities in health from them, including things like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases like heart disease, and hypertension. So what impacts does accelerated aging have on a person's overall health? So when we think about the accelerated accelerated aging process, we think about stress and what that does to the body system. How does that chronic stressor affect the wear and tear down of body systems over time? So Mm -hmm. we, we start thinking about certain stressors as chronic stressful stimuli. This cumulative risk of chronic overexposure, continuous exposure over time can wear and tear down body systems over time, leading to this premature accelerated 
rapid aging process that, that we see. So if you're always getting hit, you know, like mm-hmm. if we look at this evolutionarily, you're mm-hmm. always feeling like you're running away from the tiger. Right. So your body is never able to reach a balance is what we're saying. So usually we have natural um, mechanisms where our body is reacting to stressors in a helpful way. But when it continuously has to work and recharge itself to battle different types of stressors, it's never able to reach this calm balance mm-hmm. on a continuous level. So it's always on. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so you mentioned cardiovascular disease, there's hypertension, mm-hmm. diabetes, some of these effects. But depression was also a major focus of your study. Which characteristics do researchers categorize as depression? So when we think about depression, there are, uh, oftentimes we think about the mental symptoms. We think about things like cognitive um, hopelessness, thinking about um, difficulties paying attention. But depression also has some physiological responses as well that you might feel. So including things like irritability, mm-hmm. anger, difficulties with sleep, right? So you can think about how depression could be a potential window and understanding that we probably shouldn't think about mental and physical health as like these dichotomous things, but as these intertwined mechanisms that be- could be affecting our overall health. So your research looks specifically at this. have found a relationship between accelerated aging and depression with experiencing racism at a young age. So how connected and based off your findings, how strong is that relationship? So really what we found um, was really looking first as does this happen? (laughs) So does racial discrimination at the age of 10 affect accelerated aging at the age of 29? The second step was why? Why is this happening? And the mechanism driving that relationship was depression. So what we're saying is that over time, these trajectories towards elevated depressive symptoms are influencing trajectories towards accelerated aging. Mm -hmm. So children, as they develop and they experience racial discrimination, African-American children specifically, um, what is that process of developing depressive symptoms in relationship to that type of stressor? So we were really focused on the mechanism of depression leading to accelerated aging. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a minute Mm -hmm. and ask you about what ages and who you Mm -hmm. were studying specifically, but I'm wondering if there's any comparison in that data, in that relationship between depression and accelerated aging with other demographics, you know, with white, Asian, Latinx uh, populations. Not as much, I would say, but as a lot of growing body of literature showing similar consistencies, particularly in the Latinx communities, um, we're seeing a similar patterns of experiences of racial discrimination being linked to a lot of mental and physical health difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're also starting to think about this in other populations, including refugee populations, immigrant populations, uh, any population that has experienced marginalization. So the GSU study used data collected from kids aged 10 to 15, following them all the way up to age 29, Mm -hmm. 19-year period. That is a long-term commitment. So where does this data all come from? So it started um, at the Family and Community Health Study based primarily at UGA um, and Iowa. So the research was primarily focused on thinking about strong African-American families um, and what leads to risk and resiliency to building that. And so that was really the start of uh, trying to understand the processes that lead to resiliency and risk within African-American communities. 
So they were also studying how the the effect of parental support and discipline styles, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty interesting study. Started when? 1996. Right. Was that at UGA? So as part of it was at UGA and part of it was at Iowa to think about um, different participants that could be potentially useful for understanding strong African-American families. We don't think it necessarily has to be in only one community, but kind of getting a broad grasp of communities, um, African-American communities specifically. So participants from Georgia and Iowa, was there any sense of distinction between rural outcomes or kids who were born and raised in more urban settings? Yes, that's one of the most unique things about the Family and Community Health Study is that there was purpose in thinking about making sure we had a good distribution of urban versus rural populations, um, also differences in socioeconomic status, so high SES socioeconomic status and low SES African-American families. Um, so it was important to kind of have this broad grasp of families and risk. So we weren't just looking at poverty necessarily in response to things like racial discrimination. We were looking at this individual African-American families from higher socioeconomic status experience racial discrimination have a similar process. Mm-hmm. So kind of this risk and resiliency framework looking at multiple factors of environment um, as well as psychosocial um, factors as well. You talked earlier about drawing blood and other kind of data being collected. Can you be a little more specific about like how you were measuring what was going on with these kids? Yeah. Um, so Uh, With the blood draws, we were looking at gene expression index. So gene expression can really get an understanding of functional... Um, abil- uh, functional ability is a short way of saying it, but the how the, the level of gene expression can influence how we think about biomarkers for risk. Okay, so can you tell me that? Yeah. Like, what does gene expression mean in, uh, you know, how would that be, how would that be in a term that I can understand or say to somebody, this happens when X? I think the best way to think about gene expression is kind of like your genes turning on due to weathering. Mm-hmm. So I always come back to kind of this weathering thought process of when my genes are always constantly on, <laughs> right? It's That's where the weathering process can turn on and the level of that expression. So the level of turning on oftentimes can influence that particular relationship between biomarkers for risk. So risk for early disease states. So that I get that. And yeah. so the the idea of turning it up to 11 yeah. all the time, right. you know, there's no, as you said, there's no mm-hmm. sort of like status. There's right. no sort of calm place. How hard is it to, to collect good data on a big longitudinal study like this? I mean, do participants <laughs> drop out along the way? Participants do. Uh, there is, we call it attrition um, over time. But we actually had about a 78% retention rate um, over time of participants from Iowa and Georgia um, and our participants. But you can think about what can happen. People move, people leave their area, people are mobile. So there's other things that can lead to attrition as well. Um, but I think we had a pretty consistent group that we followed throughout those 19 years to really look and examine these types of factors. So in terms of behavior, what would be some of the ways that these gene expressions might uh, express themselves? Would somebody more liable to addiction, for example? Oh, interesting question. Uh, so, I mean, there are hypotheses that we can draw on about what can happen. And there is a lot of behavioral risk. Uh, Frederick Gibbons, one of the authors on this paper, particularly studies like health behaviors in response to racial discrimination experiences. And you can see a number of things, whether that is a coping mechanism. So, you know, I might be smoking, I might engage in unhealthy eating habits. Um, so we do see certain coping strategies that can happen. But we also see some kind of resiliency 
coping strategies mm-hmm. as well, such as seeking out social support, um, being able to discuss that with family members. And I think where our research is headed is particularly these racial socialization processes. How do you talk with your um, parents about racial discrimination experiences? Because we can see that that potentially could be helpful to pre- prevent right. certain processes from happening. Right. I know that for a lot of people, coping means, you know, stuffing down right. in many ways. Dr. Sierra Carter is with me. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Georgia State University. And we're talking about her recent study, which found a connection between experiencing racism as a child with premature aging and with depression. So your team on this study is interdisciplinary. You work with biologists, you Mm -hmm. work with neuroscientists, Mm -hmm. but as a psychologist focusing on the social part of the science. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about quantifying and measuring the experience of racism? I think asking the people who are experiencing it as a first step, right? So it's an acknowledgement piece that I think you can get through survey data. Have you experienced these things? We originally in our research oftentimes focused primarily on adults and racial discrimination, not as much on children, um, because we had some thoughts like maybe this isn't, this is too young. But we actually know that racial status is the second thing that children learn around the age of five in comparison to sex. And so when you are learning this this early in life, we start to think about what is what is the experience of racial discrimination for children and can they describe it? And the answer has been, yes, we can give them surveys around how you experience these types of things and they can express if they have or not. What are some of the kind of instances that were reported in the data? So some of them are seeing certain things. So seeing a parent um, being followed in a grocery store, or it could be their own experience. So feeling like you, um, were disproportionately singled out um, in school, um, or you feel like you um, you saw your parent get stopped um, uh, in a car because of what they look like. Mm-hmm. So it's getting at combinations of individual experiences as well as kind of like these systematic um, interpersonal relationships to racial discrimination experiences as well. These health disparities along racial racial lines have been found to be common, especially in Georgia. We have especially high maternal mortality rates and deaths from breast cancer among Mm -hmm. African-American women comparatively. NPR and ProPublica did some reporting on Mm -hmm. this and spoke with Dr. Michael Liu. He was then director of the Maternal and Child Health Bureau for the Health and Human Services. Now he's a professor at GW. Let's hear we're talking about African-American doctors and lawyers and business executives, and they still have higher maternal mortality rate than uh, white women who were high school dropouts. It's the experience of having to work harder than anybody else just to get equal pay and equal respect. It's being followed around when you're shopping at a nice store or being stopped by the police when you're driving in a nice neighborhood. Those types of experiences create a kind of chronic stress that continues to gun the engine, which over time create the wear and tear on your body's systems. So he's saying many of the same things you are, but he's talking about adults across socioeconomic demographics. Mm -hmm. So this obviously, the effects of racism are not just in childhood, but over a lifetime. So how does your research compare with other research being conducted right now on the impacts, the health impacts of racism? 
I think it aligns really well with just thinking about the longitudinal kind of long-term impact of racial discrimination on a number of health processes. When we think about things like breast cancer and also other types of chronic illnesses that can affect different communities, we can think about how stress can impact that, maybe exacerbate it. Um, and exacerbate symptoms. And I think it follows in line of saying, if I'm experiencing these things, just like how we think about other stressors, like trauma, for example, if I'm experiencing these different types of things, this can affect my body, both my mind and my body. And we need to start thinking about that and acknowledging that uh, within our systems. From my understanding, the field of epigenetics says that stressors over time can actually change gene expression mm-hmm. over time. So maybe you're a child of a, a Holocaust survivor, you know, mm-hmm. or a parent who experienced trauma can actually pass on trauma responses on a genetic level. Do we know enough about that process in terms of racism? I wouldn't say that we know enough. I think we're in the stages of examining it. Um, and we are starting to think about things like intergenerational racism. So what does it mean for from the womb, right? So uh, being pregnant and experiencing racism, but also growing up in that, how does that affect your child's development? How does that get passed down? And, you know, if we're thinking about the trauma literature in particular, we already see things like if a mom has experienced high levels of trauma, then some reports are showing that their kids are showing different signs of behavioral difficulties. You can see that and it can be related to mom's experience. And so we're thinking, our research is kind of pushing towards saying, let's start thinking about racism as this chronic stressful stimuli that can have a similar epigenetic pathway for intergenerational effects over time. And if we think about historical legacies like slavery and oppression, we can go way back in time and think about, if we think about the Holocaust, we can think about slavery in a similar oppressive environment and how that affects populations over time. And I think we're headed and thinking through what has happened um, in our historical periods that is affecting even health today that has been passed down generation to generation. Fascinating stuff. Sierra Carter, Dr. Sierra Carter, thank you so much. Thank you. She's Assistant Professor of Psychology at Georgia State University. And you can join the conversation that's going on in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Asa did, he said, as a proud black gay man, Chick-fil-A owner expresses his religion beliefs. He did not say he would serve the LGBT community, didn't say he would hire LGBT workers. His religious beliefs do not allow him to support that lifestyle. If the LGBT community wants to protest or boycott, start with the Southern Baptist Church. That is in response to last week's segment we aired regarding recent Chick-fil-A boycotts from LGBTQ groups in England. The company also announced it will close its first store in UK just days after opening. We wanted to know if putting your money your mouth is really matters or how corporate boycotts work. You can leave your comment on our Facebook page. We may just read it on the air. And coming up, we kick off Halloween week with a look at the spooky Southern photos of the father of American surrealism. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more on Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. There is no exquisite beauty without some strangeness in the proportion. That's a line from Edgar Allan Poe, the king of the dark and eerie, strange and surreal. 
It could also describe the appeal of an exhibition in its final days at the High Museum of Art. It's called Strange Light, the photography of Clarence John Lachlan. Lachlan himself has been called Edgar Allan Poe with a camera. Lachlan was a Louisiana native and Southern photographer known as the father of American surrealism. An irascible character, he broke boundaries with photographic innovations that linked imagery to the subconscious. He is truly one of the great American photographers. He had a, a wonderful sense of theater. He was kind of a 19th century character trapped in the 20th century. The exhibition is on view until November the 10th. We spoke with John Lawrence, director of museum programs for the historic New Orleans collection, which holds Lachlan's archives and master prints, and Gregory Harris, associate curator of photography for the High Museum when the show first opened. The High began collecting Lachlan's work in 1974. I asked Gregory Harris what distinguishes his work in Southern and American photography. Uh, Lachlan was a photographer who was very far ahead of his time in, in so many ways. He was one of the first photographers to really stage his scenes for the camera, to kind of build a story and use photography as a, a tool for visual storytelling uh, within a single frame. Um, and that's something that's since become very popular and very common in contemporary photography. He was also someone who experimented in the darkroom very extensively, uh, com combining negatives, uh, double exposing things in the camera, um, working with uh, the chemistry um, in unusual ways. He was not very uh, concerned about kind of a straight photograph. And so these these were things that he was doing in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, long before a lot of other photographers uh, were doing that. And so he, he kind of pre-visualized many of the things that would come in modern and contemporary photography and subsequent generations. And so I think he's someone who's not really been appreciated for those for those contributions, partly because of the fact that he was a Southerner and spent almost his entire life in New Orleans. So he was away from the major art centers at the time. Um, he was incredibly innovative and made major contributions that I think are just now starting to, to really be recognized. Well, let's get a little sense of his life. He was born in New Iberia, Louisiana, 1905, moved to New Orleans when he was young. John, what else do we know about his formative years? Well, uh, Lachlan um, and his family, uh, as you said, uh, lived in New Orleans uh, from about 1910 until the rest of his life. He um, uh, was fascinated with reading, uh, a, a hobby or a practice that he attributes to his father, uh, taking him to the library. Um, uh, his sister, Laura, was part of the family life. Uh, Lachlan's father dies in the 1918 flu epidemic, and so Clarence leaves uh, leaves his schooling to help support his family after just an eighth grade education and uh, through a, a series of jobs that made him uh, ultimately appreciate uh, the value of uh, not only a literary education but a creative uh, life he um, he becomes involved with um, uh, writing uh, prose poems, fiction, trying to market these to various outlets while still working as a clerk in a bank, and uh, hits upon the idea that if he perhaps accompanies these writings with photographs, they might have a wider appeal. And so in the early 1930s, uh, he takes up photography, uh, never abandons writing, but um, people who know his work know it more through the images rather than the words that accompany it. And it was really important to him to, that he be known as a collector of books. This was one of his central things. Uh, and also, he lost his dad young, as you said. Uh, his father died of the Spanish flu right around the end of World War One. So he had to drop out of school. Did he teach himself photography? 
He did. He um, he did not take any formal courses. Um, uh, by the time he had taught himself the rudiments of it, he had secured uh, a job with the U.S. Corps of Engineers as uh, as a photographer for uh, construction projects uh, that were happening in uh, the Lower Mississippi Valley in the wake of the 1927 flood, and. Um, Lachlan learned, I think, as much photographic technique as he needed to to uh, express the ideas that he wanted to express. Express, and as uh, as Gregory mentioned, this kind of uh, fueled an interest in experimentation in the darkroom and uh, kind of achieving results, and then s- sticking with uh, with that until. A new vision uh, necessitated a different form of experimentation. Now he's known pri- primarily for these black and white images of decaying antebellum plantations, you know, dripping with Spanish moss. These were pretty abundant in the 20th century. He wrote a book, or pr- published a book rather, of photographs, Ghosts Along the Mississippi, this kind of spooky surrealism. Yet in, the, in this film, we saw a documentary about him. It is called The Phantasmagorical Clarence John Lachlan. Here is artist Don Dedeau talking about his aesthetic. His quest to reconcile this kind of Catholicism, his, it, it's lost and found having faith, losing faith, and trying to find it again. And all of this stuff showing up in his imagery. For a man who was an atheist, there's sure a lot of ghosts around the place. You know, there's still an afterlife somewhere in Clarence's world. So this is, this is a part of him. It's not easy to reconcile, but there is this kind of attachment to um, an old South, the decaying South. Gregory, what do you think was the draw for him there? Well, he he spent uh, most of his younger life in New Orleans, and he spent his you know he he died in New Orleans as well. Um, and I think he was just fascinated by by the historic architecture um, and by the the history of that of that place where he lived. Um, he was also drawn to the literary history of the South and wanted to find ways to incorporate that into his work. And I think he just saw all of the the layers of possibility that existed in in these places which he which he frequented. Um, and he used photography as a way to kind of strip away some of those layers and reveal um, the ghosts, such as it was that that existed around around New Orleans and the the plantations and the French Quarter. Um, but it was you know it was a tool for him to kind of uh, get to another level of consciousness through photography or to reveal these things that were you know hidden in plain sight that couldn't be seen readily by. Uh, by the human eye alone. Hidden in plain sight. Here's another clip from that film, uh, someone describing, uh, John, you may know the voice better than I, about what it was like to walk around with Clarence John Lachlan. I remember a couple of wonderful times of walking through the quarter with Clarence, and he would gesture, he would constantly point out faces looking at us, and he saw them constantly. The world contacted him in ways that I simply wasn't sensitive to. John, so he was seeing something else in in the ordinary objects that other people saw. And this may have had something to do with his adding these ghostly elements, this double exposures, collage uh, that Gregory mentioned earlier. Why do you think there was such a um, fascination there? Go ahead. Yes. Well, I think Clarence was, um, was willing to do whatever it took to bring the uh, visual idea to uh, to life and what 
if that meant um, uh, staging uh, staging a photograph or uh, including a double exposure or a combination print in the darkroom or adding elements of collage or other handwork. This is um, uh, all there were no rules, uh, or you could say every, every rule was meant to be broken. Uh, the uh, and part of uh, part of Clarence's mission was to help people see these things uh, in their own way, but he also guided them through the inclusion of sometimes very extensive texts to accompany the picture and and almost lead uh, a person uh, to the brink of his own subconscious thoughts on uh, on the image and and to kind of offer a path for their own. My guests are John Lawrence from the Historic New Orleans Collection and Gregory Harris from the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. We're talking about the work and life of the Southern photographer Clarence John Lachlan. An exhibit of his work closes at the High on November 10th. Well, that kind of experimentation may have been popular in European circles at that time, and we're talking mid-20th century, but American photographers then were much more concerned with realism, with recording the truth. Anyone, John or Gregory, have thoughts on why Laughlin diverged from that? Uh, Clarence looked to Europe for his photographic cues, The um, uh, whether he was um, looking at the work of uh, Eugene Adjay, a, a photographer of a different generation who he appreciated so much, or uh, his more contemporaries, um, Man Ray or uh, um, Eugene uh, Berman. Uh, Clarence um, kind of felt that uh, American photography, as it were, w was sort of stuck in a rut of either purely formal expression or social uh, documentary photography. Photography. He wanted a third way uh, to expose uh, things about the world through photographs, and and this is what what kind of led to uh, not even a hybrid, but a, a unique way of of looking at the world through the camera. Gregory, do you want to pick up on that? I mean, he was he began working as a photographer in the the throes of the Great Depression. He matured during uh, World War II. And he really concluded his mature work as a photographer during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. So he was. <clears throat> His career was going to uh, was was building and growing as the the country was in these you know various phases of massive social change, and you know a photographer like Walker Evans would respond to that by going out into the world and making pictures of of the world as it is, trying to describe what was happening in a very frank, rational way. And I think Lachlan saw that there were. And there were ways that, you know, just pointing a camera at something was not going to reveal the, you know, the real tension, the anxiety, the emotional tone alone. And so he wanted to find ways to, to augment that and to talk about things that weren't uh, readily available just in the visual world um, as it was. And so he, he stumbled upon all of these other, these other techniques for adding, adding these layers and addressing these issues that you couldn't see necessarily. Well, let, okay, so you're leading to something that comes across in his films and also the wall text at the High Museum to me, this kind of idea that, you know, he is on one level taking photographs of antebellum mansions and their crumbling ruin, but also uh, taking photographs and making portraits of African-Americans, which wasn't, you know, done uh, in certainly 
let's say, well, actually, I don't know that. <laughs> you guys know a lot more about photography in the 20th century than I do. But but making some kind of commentary, for example, championing the artist Clementine Hunter. Um, so an African-American. So in the one hand, he seems to be nostalgic for this past, but on the other, making some sort of commentary on how that life had transformed the lives of others. Is that fair? Absolutely, man. I think he was he was deeply conflicted about the history of the South and the present that he was living in and how the the impact of slavery and the, the Jim Crow laws, you know, still resonated um, during his lifetime. And I think there was a, a certain amount of him that that, like you said, had, he had nostalgia for this other way of life, this kind of old South, this uh, antebellum South. And he saw that in the architecture. I mean, he, he was a he loved architecture. Was very involved in historic preservation, and so he kind of revered, you know, these uh, these old South plantations and the creative achievements that they recognized. But at the same time, um, he saw that they were symbols of of a, of a you know a ghastly and shameful uh, past and an, and an economy that had been built on the backs of people who were who were horribly exploited. And so, to balance out those pictures uh, that kind of uh, rever- you know revered the old South, he made sure to photograph a lot of the the descendants of formerly enslaved people. And to photograph them with, you know, a degree of, you know, high degree of dignity to to show, to show their humanity, to show their dignity in a way that they they weren't often portrayed in photographs uh, at the time. Um, also, an interesting relationship with women. He was married five times, twice to the same woman. And there is a photo on display in the show at the high called the Repulsive Bed. This is woman in this black veil, which is often a theme for him, which looks very, you know, Victorian shadow of death on some level. She's played on a mattress on a floor of a once grand room, now moldering, referencing the decay of the marital bed. Marital bed. So do these, in, in some ways, show a fraught relationship with women or in some ways idealize them, project upon them? I'm, I'm not sure um, uh, how Clarence would have uh, would have characterized his own relationship with women. Uh, they were, um, uh, as you said, certainly a big part of his life um, uh, through five marriages, and uh, they are um, certainly important uh, important figures, literally and um, symbolically, in in many of the photographs he makes. I um, I, w- I would uh, I would be doing uh, your listeners and Clarence a disservice if I if I went further than that because I simply don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, looking at his work altogether, John, you know, clearly very tied to the character of New Orleans, a place that couldn't afford urban renewal when other cities were plowing down the old to make way for the new. What do you think his work does to reflect or refute the concept, the canon of Southern art and the South overall? It's um, uh, New Orleans has has often been characterized as uh, in the South, but not of the South. And I think that uh, Clarence's uh, interpretation of uh, the city that he called home for most of his life is reflective of that. It um, it represents uh, a place that he found great comfort in, in spite of uh, in spite of its flaws. His uh, his sense of the city's own history is something that is inextricably linked to his photographs of it. And uh, it's it's one of, uh, as almost a, a casual 
uh, side effect, he gives us this wonderful documentary evidence of the city uh, during the middle decades of the 20th century. That was my earlier conversation with Gregory Harris, Associate Curator of Photography for the High Museum, and John Lawrence, Director of Museum Programs for the Historic New Orleans Collection. You can see a slideshow of Lachlan's photographs at our website. Just go to the On Second Thought page at gbbnews.org. The work is just right as we head into Halloween week. And that show, Strange Light, the photography of Clarence John Lachlan, is on view at the High Museum through November 10th. And we are going to disappear for today. You heard music from Dead Bones earlier in the show. Now we're going to leave you with Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Amy Kiley is senior producer. And Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott, back again tomorrow with more of On Second Thought.